I'm glad you're joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman coming to you from Atlanta in November of 2021. Today, we're going to be talking about how we can help migrating flocks of birds, especially in fall and spring, by reducing the light pollution emanating from our homes and offices at night and bird proofing our glass windows. And we discuss why that is so important to bird species survival and thus needs to be a collective habit across all cities. Our radio guest is Julia Wang, part of a collaborative of scientists who run a project called BirdCast that gives us maps and precision tools to successfully go lights out when birds are migrating in North America to prevent mortality events. Let me tell you about the organization and my guest. BirdCast is a consortium of interdisciplinary researchers, primarily from the Cornell University Lab of Ornithology, Colorado State University, and University of Massachusetts at Amherst, with a growing list of collaborators, supporters, and partners. BirdCast proposed to provide real-time predictions of bird migrations, when they migrate, where they migrate, and how far they will be flying. The project provides novel web-based data visualizations for communicating the bird migration predictions generated by BirdCast to the general public. And their website is birdcast.info, and that's birdcast.info. Um, you can see the maps there. Beginning in 2018, after many years of research and developments in machine learning, cloud-based computing, and big data analytics, the BirdCast site began to feature migration forecasts that predicted how many birds would be aloft over the continental US and live migration maps that reported how many birds actually took flight. These bird migration maps represented a culmination of a 20 year long vision of BirdCast. So too, the beginnings of new inspiration for the next generation of bird migration research, outreach and education. Julia Wang is a BirdCast project leader whose primary focus is on developing and coordinating lights out campaigns with conservation partners and local stakeholders to facilitate widespread public and governmental adoption of conservation practices. These campaigns integrate BirdCast research to better target which night's migratory birds are most at risk from harmful effects of artificial night lighting, as well as to quantify intervention effects. Julia completed her bachelor's in government at Cornell University and is particularly interested in the application of research to solving real world problems and in behavioral change on both the individual and systemic level. Welcome, Julia. Hi, thanks for having me on, Carrie, and thanks for that wonderful introduction. Sure. Well, Julia, I want to say that I just recently got the play on words with the name of your organization. <laughs> is BirdCast like a weather forecast, but forecasting yeah. birds? Like, I don't know why. Like, it, it made no sense to me why it was called BirdCast, but I guess I'm a little slow on the uptake. But I was like, now I get it. They're forecasting birds, and that's a great name. Oh, no, yes. don't worry. It took me a couple of weeks as well, even working. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. Okay. Well, some people might think, oh, well, that's just interesting biological science that researchers can predict and track bird migrations Okay, at BirdCast. But how is it also a wildlife conservation effort? That's a great question. Um, and the answer starts with the, uh, the idea that migration is a particularly vulnerable time for birds. Mortality is somewhere around six times higher during migration and mortality during migration seasons can have 
a really important impact on both short-term population dynamics as well as the long-term survival of species. So it's a period we're particularly interested in knowing about so we have better avenues to protect birds during those periods. Yeah. Um, so studying, predicting, tracking bird migration at bird casts lets us have a more specific understanding of not only what threat, which what threats which birds are facing when, but also allows us to work to implement dynamic solutions to those threats. Um, if we know where birds are, we know where and when to focus our efforts to protect them. For example, um, we know if we can track migration, that um, knowledge of where birds are moving can help us inform sighting of wind turbines or when to turn off lights if lights impact collisions, which as we'll discuss later, they, they unfortunately do. Now, oh, you mentioned wind turbines. Like, do, is there some communication that you would give to um, like somebody running like a wind farm that there's birds migrating through and they should either stop the turbines or light them up so that they can be avoided or or not like them uh, up. I don't know. I just, <laughs> since you mentioned wind turbines, I was yeah, just curious. I would lean towards not letting them not up. Not lighting them up. Okay. The effort really at this point is trying to, as we add more wind turbines around this country, uh, site them in locations that will be less adverse to birds. Aye. So we work with people to um, inform that sort of sighting. And okay. Cause if we, if you keep track of the, the path that birds take or mm -hmm. the, maybe even the elevation that they're at, exactly. that can help decide which sites are more, um, would be more problematic. Precisely. Yeah. So there's okay. a lot of different applications towards conservation. And those are a couple that we're currently interested in. And there's also been a good deal of discussion around, uh, bird migration in terms of reducing airplane bird collisions. So that's oh, also a great airplanes. Yeah, because I was going to, this answers some of the question that I have, what are some of the reasons that birds die in migration? Like, especially if they're human caused reasons. So we mentioned uh, okay. airplanes and we mentioned wind turbines. Yeah, those are actually, um, although I feel like they're, they're flashy and they get a good deal of press, unfortunately, right. Um, there are even bigger reasons, human-caused reasons for bird loss. Um, the biggest one, of course, is habitat loss. Um, the next, I believe, by mortality is free-roaming cats. And after that is collisions with human structures, including buildings, but not limited to them. Also including telecommunication. Ah, sorry, telecommunication towers, excuse. Okay, right, like <laughs> we see them a lot around like for cell phone towers and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and a couple of other human structures. But um, yeah. our primary focus in lighting at the moment is uh, mostly buildings that um, individual people can have an impact on like office building and residences and stuff like that. But collisions with human structures overall, um, huge threat to birds. <laughs> and, um, are bird populations decreasing? Like I know we're living through a mass extinction era globally, mm -hmm. but um, is, is are there? Uh, I imagine there's pro problems with you know birds that migrate through. But I was wondering, like, how big of an issue yeah. is this that we need? Should we be actively yeah. trying to save them? Not just because we want to, <laughs> um, you know, prevent suffering and death, but even for ecological reasons. Yeah, there's absolutely ecological reasons. So we actually released a study um, semi-recently in the last few years to quantify that, and unfortunately found that 
Um, since 1970, American bird populations, North American bird populations, excuse me, have dropped um, nearly 30%, Ugh, uh, which amounts to about 3 billion birds gone, all in less than a single human lifetime. Um, wow. So migratory birds account for about 2.5 billion of those losses. We've lost orioles, meadowlarks, warblers, countless others. It's wow. um, unfortunately a pretty critical situation. And so we are more focused than ever on not only more research to learn more about the specifics of these problems, but implementing that research to real world solutions. Right. That's what I really like about this, especially I, I am a researcher at a university myself, even though I'm not a scientist. So I liked that a lot of mm. this is university researchers saying, <laughs> oh, OK, I'm studying bird migration, but I want to stop the extinction and I want to stop, you know, unnecessary yeah. death like this. So that's what I like is the practical, you know, application absolutely of, of this. Now I saw on birdcast.info, which is uh, the website, that there was an incident where hundreds of songbirds died in mid-September when they were migrating through Manhattan. What happened there and why did it happen? Ah, gotcha. Um, that was a mass collision mortality event. Um, and unfortunately, uh, those happen a, a reasonable amount. It's not, certainly not the first time that it's happened, and I'm right. sure that it won't be the last. But essentially, uh, migrating birds uh, navigate using natural light and magnetism and a variety of things. Um, oh, and before, before I get into that, yeah. to clarify, because I feel like a lot of people don't actually know this, about 80% of North American migrate, migrants actually migrate at night um, okay. because it's easier to keep body temperature uh, sort of stable. There's less predators for a variety of reasons, but the majority of them are moving at night. And when they encounter light pollution, that sort of throws off their ability to navigate to a certain degree. Mm. It confuses them and they're sort of drawn towards the light, typically towards urban centers that are emitting a great deal of light pollution. And when they're drawn towards those centers, they end up being drawn to all the hazards that are also in urban centers, including bird um, building collisions. And right. so what happened in New York City um, is that there was uh, intense urban light pollution and an abundance of tall buildings um, together with poor flying conditions. I, I think there was a frontal boundary that night associated with strong storms and poor visibility. Oh. Um, and all of that happened on a night where there was very intense and low altitude migration mm -hmm. and hundreds and hundreds of birds collided and unfortunately died that night striking those tall buildings. We've also seen um, mass mortality events in recent years in Philadelphia, in Texas, in Galveston, and all across the country, really. So it's something that we continue to be concerned about. Um, and that's why we talk about light pollution a great deal and going lights out wherever possible. Yeah. Now, so speaking of that, what can we do to help aid migrating birds to prevent deadly collisions? Absolutely. So we recommend turning off um, or dimming as much as possible non-essential lighting during migration season. And we recommend doing that at night from around 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. Um, and we provide tools to allow people to have a better understanding of when migration season is happening. Um, obviously, it's a bit different across the country at various times. Um, spring and fall migration each stretch for several months, but there's particular periods where um, it sort of peaks and 
the majority of birds are passing through in perhaps a few weeks or a shorter period. So we provide tools to inform people when that's happening, when migration is going on, and ask them to turn off non-essential lights during migration seasons. Unfortunately, both indoor and outdoor lighting um, can affect uh, bird building collisions. So we just ask that you do things like drop blinds, um, set lights on timers, um, like add shields to lighting or turn it downwards, um, those sorts of things. There are more specific guidelines on our website, birdcast.info. If you uh, head on over to Science to Action and Lights Out, there's like a full list of guidelines. But the general idea is reducing as much light pollution as possible, especially during migration season. So we, like that would mean if a, a person in their apartment or, or their house would, um, like as it gets, especially in spring or fall, as it gets to be towards um, like after 10 o'clock or approaching 11 o'clock, mm -hmm. start turning, like making sure your blinds are closed, turning off the lights or having them really soft yeah. in your house and not really bright lighting that's like lighting up the whole room. Absolutely. Yeah. And then people probably keep their porch lights on maybe all night sometimes. Yeah, you know, um, I would recommend down shielding porch lighting um, or if you have sort of uh, lighting that you use for security purposes on your home, perhaps setting that on a motion sensor um, or a timer, that sort of thing, just to reduce the overall light pollution. Um, in addition, like I would recommend for sort of tall commercial buildings, turning off or dimming interior home lighting, um, reducing any sort of lighting near land sort of uh, landscape lighting, I guess, uh, whenever oh, there right. are sort of trees in proximity to glass, it worsens the problem since the birds can't see the glass, they see the reflection of the tree and they smash into the atriums. Right. So um, those sorts of problems. So wherever possible, um, non-essential lighting should be turned off during migration periods. So that this information could be shared with, um, for those of us listening, um, it could be shared with um, our facilities people at any um, place we work, an office building. Absolutely. A lot of times, like I actually in my office, I can't even turn off the lights in my um, office. Yeah. Like there, I, I don't know, there's no light switch. And so yeah. they just <laughs> leave them on. Now I hope they go off in the middle of the night, but I actually don't know. And yeah. so I do think there's a lot of people in an office setting that are retail kind of settings. They can't mm -hmm. control it where they work, but they could express to their um, supervisors or the executives that they want to participate, you know, for in sure. This. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, to a, to a great degree, we found working with buildings that a lot of the time uh, lights in major commercial buildings or workplaces are usually handled by one or two people at the end of the day. Right. So, and a lot of the time, um, all it takes is, you know, uh, a request from the tenants themselves, the workers themselves to show that interest to get um, to share the awareness um, and then action can happen. It's a lot more <laughs> inviting, if you will, if it comes internally. Right. And so we reckon, you know, we, we suggest wherever possible, just letting people know around you so that they can contribute to the solution if they want to. A lot of the times with commercial buildings, um, it's something as simple as rescheduling a cleaning crew outside mm -hmm. of like peak hours from 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. so that lights don't have to be on during that period, which is usually a fairly simple thing to do once people are aware of it. And I like your idea that you mentioned for security about the motion 
the motion lighting because I think that's mm. why a lot of office buildings or even homes have lighting on all the time as they are trying to have it to keep anybody from breaking in but if yeah. you have but it doesn't have to be lit up all the time and if someone's walking by or even yeah. inside it would trigger those kinds of things and that would also reduce um electricity use and absolutely you know, greenhouse gas emissions so it's like actually money oh yeah, like yeah. seems like a win-win Oh, absolutely. And beyond that, you know, there's other things you can do. You can um, set lights on a timer or a motion to a sensor. You can also change the types of lights that you're using instead of using like super bright LEDs. Maybe you switch to a warmer um, red or orange light, which is uh, less bright and causes less light pollution. Um, maybe you just downshield your security lighting. And yeah. so there are, there are multiple ways to tackle the problem and multiple ways in which people the solution. If you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this is In Tune to Nature, and I'm host Carrie Freeman talking with Julia Wang, project leader at BirdCast, about ways we can save the lives of migrating flocks of birds to prevent deadly collisions, such as by turning off non-essential lights at night. Their bird migration website with all the cool maps is at birdcast.info. Julia, what are some lights out programs that are working well in some cities? Like if you've got some partnerships um, between different um, organizations that mm -hmm. collectively work together to spread the word and all kind of support each other and trying to make their whole city or community or neighborhood um, darker at night. Absolutely. So uh, there are, I believe, over 20 Lights Out programs across the U.S. And then um, FLAP Canada, the Fatal Light Awareness Program, was, I believe, the originator of all of them back in the early 90s or so. Um, FLAP is doing an amazing job and has been doing an amazing job for the last few decades. Um, uh, there are a couple shining examples of like successful lights out programs that sort of depend on the environment of city politics and interests and birding and conservation in general across the US. I like to think that we're doing pretty well in Texas where BirdCast is focused on building lights out programs right now. Um, we're working with cities all across the state and local partners all across the state as this is often more successful when you know, it's coming from the community around you being concerned about birds. Um, there have been some great programs really all over the country. Um, one that comes to mind is Chicago. They've had the majority of their downtown lights off since I believe the early 2000s due to a partnership between city governments and the building owners and managers association wow. there. Because I mean, yeah. talk about tall buildings. That's the, oh, yeah. I mean, Chicago. <laughs> Um, so that's a major, that's, that's a really great uh, achievement to think that all of their skyscrapers have, and that, anyway, the, the people that run the city have actually said, like, this is something we all want yeah. to do. Yeah, the mayor has been amazing up there from what I have heard at supporting these programs and sort of bird conservation in general. And the BOMA, um, the Building Owners and Managers Association has been great about, you know, making sure that that actually happens. Um, and so I think that's a program really to be proud of and to emulate. But of course, in different cities, there are different sort of concerns and willingness to participate. Um, and there's a lot of, I am um, happy to see, especially in the wake of these horrible, horrible, tragic uh, mass mortality events in the last few years, there seems to be a renewed interest in Lights Out um, across the country. We hope that we're contributing 
to that sort of revival and bringing awareness to light pollution all over. And we've seen some amazing strides here in Texas. We've, um, there, I believe there's around seven cities in Texas that have issued um, proclamations from the mayor's offices um, that set, set a predetermined set of dates um, each migration season as lights out nights. So they'll proclaim in the spring or the fall um, for like a peak period that Birdcast is particularly concerned about and ask their downtown buildings to turn off their lights and anyone else who's able to participate to turn off their lights during that period. Um, this last year, I believe in Texas, Dripping Springs um, and Travis County both made those resolutions permanent ones and for the Great. full migration season. So we're really excited to see that and we hope to see more of that. Because that means like someone would get emails that remind them because that would be useful for because some of us might go look at the birdcast <laughs> website now and be like, oh, okay, that's great. And then we start doing it, but then we kind of forget about it. Mm -hmm. And then next mm -hmm. spring comes around and we're not doing it again. But if we were getting, I don't know if, if how do people so end up getting emails? So the city, does the yeah. city arrange that? So that's like uh, on a local level, okay. uh, sometimes the city will, like the mayor's office might communicate with building owners and managers like at the outset of the period um, to let them know that that's an initiative that they'd like to participate in. Um, as far as like email alerts go, we at Birdcast actually have a new alert uh, function oh, that we're betaing and <laughs> in addition good. to our maps. So if you go to, um, let me find the address because I actually don't have it memorized. Uh, our migration tools page on BirdCast, you can see um, the third section is our local bird migration alerts. Okay. Um, and so you can enter your city, um, any city in the continental US to determine what migration looks like in your area tonight, tomorrow night, and the night after that. And so currently um, our email alerts are only within Texas as that's where okay. we're focusing our efforts, but you do have the ability to sign up from most cities in Texas to receive um, high alerts directly to your inbox. In the future, we'll likely expand that capability. To yeah, us oh, I as hope well. so. Yeah, I hope it gets expanded to Atlanta and, and really all the different cities because that would, especially if it came anyway, yeah, a text yeah. alert on people's phones, it would just yeah, kind of just straight to them. All, yeah. yeah, to pay more attention to it. Well, Absolutely. Julia, for listeners who are interested in helping migrating bird flocks or helping the BirdCast project, what would you recommend for them to kind of get involved beyond gotcha. just doing things around their own home by turning the lights off? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say that one of the number one ways that people can help birds is spreading awareness of the threats and the solutions. Now that you as a listener know that light pollution is an issue for birds and that you can mitigate that threat, by just reducing light pollution at night, whether at home or at work, I would urge people to share that information with their friends, their families, and their neighbors, their um, the buildings that they work at, and the cities they live in, wherever possible. Um, and I would additionally say that if listeners are interested in getting involved beyond that, they can participate in citizen science with eBird, which is another project of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Um, where you can contribute bird sighting so that we have a better understanding of bird migration, bird populations, et cetera, and can continue tackling these problems. Does eBird have its own website? Uh, is, that would be eBird.org. 
eberd.org. eberd.org. Okay. Um, that's, that's awesome. And yeah, I really, uh, appreciate everything that you're doing. Uh, that's <laughs> the end of our show, but I want to thank you, Julia Wang, for being with us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. And thanks for the work you do at BirdCast to help us coexist with animals in nature so our lifestyles don't accidentally end their lives. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, take care. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature, broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, online at wrfg.org and on Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com backslash Nature. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman, asking you to please support independent, non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. And remember to take care of yourself and others, including other species, especially migrating birds. Thank you for listening. Cheers.